Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We'll be in this chapter today, but sort of as a launching point, we're going to read verses 30 31. There's 30 and 31. This is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Let's pray one more time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this day that we can celebrate not only the Reformation and all that that entails, the great mercy and grace that was shown to the church by bringing them out of Babylonian captivity, as it were. But Lord, for unleashing to us the Scriptures, taking us out of the dark ages, as it were, and shining the light of Your Word on the world. And Lord, today we want to marvel at that truth, and we want to fix our faith firmly rooted in the Scriptures and in what You have revealed concerning Your Son, Jesus Christ, whom You have set forth as a propitiation, and whom you have raised from the dead in order to declare once and for all that all men everywhere should repent and believe in the gospel. So Lord, help us today. Give us ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak, Lord, and help us to study your scriptures as good Bereans of your word rightly dividing the word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, today I thought for Reformation Day, you know, I've done different topics throughout the years. I've done biographies of great reformers. We've looked at classic texts on reform theology. I've taken particular doctrines of reform theology. And today, what is basically um, relevant in my life, sort of going to spill over into your life today, because uh, for the last several months here at Heritage Grace, I've been teaching a class on Vantillian apologetics on the one hand, and on the other hand, I am preparing for a debate on apologetics, and so I'm immersed on apologetics. Now, let me just, let me just sort of qualify that by saying that I had no interest in studying Vantillian apologetics at this stage of my walk, because uh, I kind of did that already. <laughs> I sort of spent, I tell people, I probably spent 10 years too much on apologetics and wish I would have devoted more time strictly to the study of Reformed theology, but that's what happened to me. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, okay, so in preparation for that debate, I'm going to use you all as my guinea pigs today. And uh, we're going to look at what we could call Paul, the resurrection, and Reformed apologetics. And in that, you all understand that when I say Reformed apologetics, 
what I'm going to say is that what Reformed theology gives us in the area of apologetics, specifically dealing with presuppositional apologetics, I think is reflected here in the text of Acts chapter 17. And so if we were to put it rightly, what what I'm saying is that as we faithfully exegete and exposit Acts chapter 17, what we get coming out of the scriptures essentially coalesces, adheres to, and harmonizes and stands in solidarity with what is known today as presuppositional apologetics. I will not quibble over the term presuppositional. Some Reformed theologians have said, well, we need to call it other things. Well, I won't, I won't try to uh, win that debate here or change that or alter that conversation here. Uh, be it as it may, what I'm arguing for is that contrary to the classical proofs for Christianity, contrary to what is known today as evidentialism, contrary from beginning with one brute fact of history or one empirical fact of archaeology or what have you. Little by little, we are reasoning with greater and greater probability to the validity of Christianity or to the existence of God. Presuppositionalism is different. We take the total Christian worldview as our premise, without which nothing, either in history or in nature, is intelligible. And so that is essentially the presuppositional approach to Christianity. Now, is that what happens here in this text? Now, granted, I read to you out of Acts chapter 17, specifically where most people would say, well, this is actually speaking contrary to what is known as presuppositional apologetics. I'm going to argue different. And I'm going to proceed through this chapter in Acts In three steps, ready? And this will also be the outline to the chapter. Number one, I'm going to give you Paul's ascent to the Areopagus, and we'll talk about that. And that's going to go verses 16 to verse 23. Number two, we're going to look at Paul's analysis of history, verses 24 to 29. And lastly, Paul's argument for the resurrection, verses 30 to 31. Now, before we begin, let me just give you a little bit of autobiographical background as to why are we doing this? Where, how did Pastor Emilio get to this point? Well, back in the 90s, I guess, and kind of dating myself a little bit, but back in the 90s, uh, when I was immersed in apologetics, you see, because after I got saved, uh, you know, I worked at a factory with a bunch of unbelievers, and prior to getting saved, you know, I used to party with those unbelievers, and then I became a believer, and then they were all wondering, what happened to you, man? And so, from the very beginning of my walk with Christ, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I had to begin to defend the faith right away. Uh, I I worked with everything from, you know, agnostics, atheists, Satanists. I worked with Mormons, Oneness Pentecostals. I I worked with everything, you see. And so, uh, right away, I had to defend the faith. And so, I immersed myself in a study of apologetics. I read everything I can get my hands on, on apologetics. I read everything from Norm Geisler. I read everything to Josh McDowell. My first book on apologetics, I'll never forget it. I still remember it today. It's a 500-page book by Josh McDowell called Ready Defense. I read it twice because I didn't understand it, and so I had to read it twice. And uh, a lot of good, helpful, wonderful information in those books. 
Uh, and then I got the Encyclopedia of Apologetics by Geisler, Skept When Skeptics Ask, his work on classical apologetics, all of those things. I studied Lee Strobel. I went and I read all sorts of, uh, of stuff on archaeology. I, I, I studied textual criticism. I read F.F. F. Bruce on the canon. I read everything I can get my hands on. I read everything I could, as far as I could understand, on intelligent design, arguments against evolution. I read all of these types of People, you know, I go and see J.P. Moreland give a lecture at Biola University and talking about, you know, probability arguments for the existence of God and those kinds of things. And yet, at the end of the day, I realized that what I was doing in apologetics was exactly what Norm Geisler said in one of his books. And what he said in one of his books was this. It is possible that God has never existed. And I read that as a young Christian thinking, what? And so what I'm doing in apologetics is essentially telling people there's a really, 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 really good probability that God exists. You might want to believe in him. And I thought, how does that square with the Bible? In, pl in places like Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, no, doubter, no doubting, no wavering, full assurance of faith. How does that square with nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? I don't see a probably in there. And so I thought, okay, this is at odds, and I began to sort of go into a dark night of the soul personally because I started realizing philosophically I can't handle the idea that it's possible that God doesn't exist. Or as Norm Geisler says, there are no arguments against the possibility that God does not exist. See, in order for you to know for certain that God exists in that line of thinking, you'd have to know all knowledge. You'd have to know, you'd have to have tested every last factoid in the universe to verify conclusively, empirically, that in fact, everything that the Christian worldview claims is true. Or is there another way? And I think there is another way. So that led me to a pursuit, and I was in a wasteland, to be quite honest. I'm just giving you, you know, my testimony of what happened. And there I was in Southern California in a little bookstore called the House of Bibles in Tustin, and just wandering around as I use, you know, I did that all the time. I just go to bookstores and wander around and just kind of peruse through the books. You know, I was always w willing and completely willing to spend money on books I didn't really need but just wanted more books you know I don't know but uh, there I was and I looked up at a shelf and I saw this little yellow book it just stuck out I just kind of looked at it I picked it up I grabbed it. I don't know what I was looking at or what I had in my hand but it said the defense of the faith by Cornelius Van Til and the guy at the bookstore said hey that's a good book man you need to get that I said, okay, I'll just listen to you, whatever you say. <laughs> so, so I just, uh, I bought it. And as, as I bought it, I began to read what Van Til was teaching in his book, Defense of the Faith, and I've come to agree with it. And, that it's th and basically it's this, that Christianity is the necessary precondition for intelligibility. Without it, you don't know anything rightly. In other words, it is absolutely necessary that Christianity is true because without it, you don't have the basis for meaning, morals, and beauty. Sound familiar, any UNT fans? But what does Paul do here in Acts? That's my testimony. That's how I arrived at what I think is a more pure biblical apologetic. What happens here in this text? It's fascinating. Acts chapter 17, really fascinating. So let's, uh, let's put on our thinking caps here as we think about this. But this entire process of apologetics and its connection with Acts chapter 17 we have to understand what is going on, the situation, Paul's ascent to the Areopagus, what the Areopagus is. But let me say this bluntly today. 
Who approaches the Areopagus? The Areopagus was the hill, and on top of the hill, Mars Hill, there was the temple to, you know, different gods and whatnot, and one of the temples there was where the philosophers would gather and counsel together and discuss their philosophies, and, you know, Acts tells you what philosophers were there, the Epicureans, the Stoics, we'll talk about them in a second, but it was basically a hub for a philosophy. It was the high point of Rome. It was, it, there, there was where the whole market of ideas was to be found, but the person that went into Mars Hill was not a free-thinking, autonomous reasoning, open-minded, blank slate of objectivity heading into a field of neutrality. Everybody write that down? In other words, Paul was not undecided when he went to Mars Hill. He was staunchly biblical. Paul, remember, introduces himself in the book of Romans as this, Paul, the apostle of God, separated to the gospel of God. In other words, when Paul went into Mars Hill, he had an identity. He had a bias. He had a worldview. And that's who he was. He was not open-minded. He was not neutral in that sense. And that's important. I want to point out, Three quick things here in terms of the approach to the Areopagus. Number one, the evangelistic occasion. Number two, the Tarsus connection. Number three, the philosophical conflict. Now, these are just quick points. Number one, the evangelistic occasion. Understand, for the Apostle Paul, apologetics was a matter of evangelism. Apologetics was a matter of evangelism. I remember years ago, my wife and I and couple others, we went to a seminary here nearby, which will remain unnamed, but we went and we actually talked to different people, students, faculty, and my wife, you know, being much more bold than I am, went up and said to one old professor that was there, when was the last time you shared your faith? And I thought, wow, that was bold. <laughs> it, it was spoken intact. <laughs> she wasn't being rude. And he said, you know, this guy was a renowned professor on this seminary. You know what he said to us? He said, you know what? That's a good idea. I don't remember the last time I did share my faith. Now, this is one of the greatest thinkers on the campus, okay? Not sharing his faith. Let me tell you guys, the Apostle Paul be, you know, was whatever he was, as great, the, the, the mind, the theological acumen that gave us the book of Romans, he was a broken-hearted evangelist. He was a broken-hearted event. You see evidence of this in Acts 17, 16. His spirit was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Brothers and sisters, don't you understand that you live in a city full of idols? Uh, uh, God forbid that we ever become numb to that. That we are surrounded by idolatry. Okay, maybe it's not a statue of the god of Zeus or something like that, but people are erecting idols, and as Calvin says, every human being is an idol factory. Their heart produces idols, idols. Now, the fact that this idolatry issue has emerged will become extremely important in the exposition of this text. Number two, Paul was a jealous evangelist. What do I mean by that? Is that he was jealous for the glory of God. That's what was at stake, and it motivated him so much that he was willing to reason with people. In other words, it propelled him. He moved out of just feeling bad about sin to doing something about it, to actually going and having a conversation with the Jews, 
with the God-fearing Gentiles. And watch this, verse 17, those who just happened to be present. For Paul, the gospel was something that needed to be advanced. The gospel was confrontational in that God, in the message of his son, is not so much entering into a dialogue with people as much as he is warning people, warning them. And that will become clear in verse 30. And then number three, Paul was also a biblical evangelist. Why? Because what was at the center of his keruzo, his preaching, his message? It was Jesus and the resurrection. That's what was at the very heart and soul of the message of Paul. And this point is really the burden of the whole sermon today. It implies that Paul's method in apologetics was theological. Now listen to this. If you learn nothing today about, I don't know, pastor was talking about some apologetics thing and presupposition and intelligibility, and I, I didn't get it. Okay, well, just remember this. Paul the theologian was the same Paul who was the apologist. In other words, he did not set his theology on the shelf in the act of evangelism and apologetics. No, he took his theology into his apologetic encounters. That's what he did. Paul was not simply making a moral argument about idolatry or an ontological argument about how reasonable it is that God should exist. Notice also, nowhere in this text does Paul attempt to prove the existence of God. He doesn't do that. Why? Because if you believe what I just told you, the theologian Paul is the, theologian, is the, apolo- the apologist Paul then you will know that what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 about the fact that everyone knows that there is a God, God has shown it to them. That same theologian is the one talking here or witnessing here in Acts chapter 17. Then you'll understand why he doesn't labor and give all these lines of argument and all these lines of evidences to try to prove that God exists. Neither was Paul interested in proving rational probability of general theism Paul was not there to establish faith in a God. Not at all. Paul does not move piecemeal from one unrelated fact to another until at last man has enough facts. I will argue that Paul argued by the fact of the total Christian worldview in order to demolish the Athenian worldview that raised itself against the knowledge of God. What about the background, the background of this section here of Scripture? You know, there's a Tarsus connection. I said there's an evangelistic encounter, occasion, there's the Tarsus connection, and there's the philosophical conflict. The Tarsus connection is very important because sometimes Acts chapter 17 is used for the spontaneity of the passage. Those who just happen to be there, but my dear friends, this whole episode in the book of Acts is no happen chance encounter. This is not accidental. This is no incident, not incidental. This was orchestrated by the hand of a sovereign God. We can say the, a God who has been preparing Paul his whole life for this moment. I believe something like it was monumental. And why do I say that? Well, because of Tarsus. Now understand, Paul used to be called what? Saul of Tarsus. Now understand, what was Tarsus? Well, in Acts chapter 21, verse 39, the apostle Paul describes Tarsus as what? Acts 21, 39. 
he describes Tarsus as no insignificant city. Why was it not an insignificant city? Because many of the philosophical traditions that were present at the Areopagus, the Epicurean, the Stoic, the Greek philosophy that's there, specifically the Stoic branch of philosophy, many of its greatest thinkers came from where? Tarsus. And so Zeno, the actual founder of Stoicism, came from Tarsus. You had others, Antipater, Heraclitus, Athenodorus, all of these men from Tarsus. And therefore, it is pretty, uh, I think it's pretty uh, fair to assume that the Apostle Paul understood Stoicism and probably, no doubt, had been exposed to the greatest Stoic of all, Seneca, the Roman Stoic, and the most prolific authority on Stoicism, a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. We could say that God had been preparing Paul for this moment his entire life, and therefore the philosophical conflict that happens in Mars Hill was, did not catch Paul by surprise, as if to say, oh no, there are Stoic and Epicureans here. What will I do? <laughs> I think he already knew what he was going to do. Now let's think about the philosophical conflict. I already mentioned there are two uh, philosophies that were present there, Epicureans and Stoics. Now if you know anything about the Epicureans, you know that essentially they are atomistic. They believe that the world is made up of little atoms and that everything in a sense is sort of distinct and separate, plural, there's no unity to it. Everything is in a sense random, okay? And they were also naturalists. No souls, no afterlife, no immor immortality. They were also empiricists. We, we could say they are the ancient logical positivists. The uh, logical positivism is a post-enlightenment philosophy that basically believes that unless you can prove something through sensory experience, i.e. through empiricism, that everything is subject to skepticism. And so empiricists in that way. They also believed that these atoms were, in a sense, in motion, and that there was this consistency to the particles of, that made up all reality, and that they were sort of all falling in one direction in reality, and that occasionally there would be some sort of disruption to that continuum. Something would sort of disrupt the flow of the atoms that were the particles falling through the universe, okay? They refer to that as the Epicurean swerve. In other words, an inexplicable, random, whatever phenomenon. There would fall in claims of miracles. There would fall in claims of the supernatural. There would fall in things that were inexplicable, rationally speaking. They would say, oh, there was some sort of inexplicable swerve in the atoms in the universe. And then we'll go back to normal, everything goes right. Basically, inexplicable and unimportant. That's the way they viewed reality. They were also deists. If a god or gods exist, he's there, they're there, but they're not involved. Epicureans also lived a hedonistic life. The goal of life is pleasure. What about the Stoics? Epicurus, 4th century B.C., and Zeno, 4th century B.C., born almost in the same year, uh, complete opposites. Stoics believed in monism. Everything is one, even to the level of pantheism. Everything is one, including God and man. 
if you define God in the Stoic way, i.e. that there is this overarching eternal sort of principle, maybe even a flame of some sort known as the eternal logos. That sound familiar, Christians? Right? The logos of God, right? Jesus is the logos. And many commentaries, you read any good commentaries like D.A. Carson or, or, or Kostenberger on the book of John, you'll, you'll see how that the construction that John gives you there in the prologue, John 1.1, eliminates the Greek, the, the Greek uh, concept of the logos. Okay, so combating that as well as other things. But Stoics were essentially pantheists. Uh, uh, um, they were rationalists. Human reason is ultimate. Belief is sort of to the side. It's all about reason. Emotions are meaningless. Matter of fact, everything is subject to fatalism. Everything is subject to apathy because kesara sera. You have no way to influence what will be, and therefore life to a Stoic was ultimately reduced to futility. And the aim of a Stoic was to be as emotionless, as apathetic as possible. I mean, think about that. What a worldview, right? Greek philosophy in general was present. That's the background of the Areopagus. And what was some of the Greek philosophy present at the Areopagus? Mysticism, hedonism, fatalism, dualism, mythology, asceticism, atomism, monism, rationalism, and materialism. And God put Paul in the middle of that. You think we could still learn from Paul in apologetics? You bet. Why? Because all worldviews are essentially similar. I mean, today you might have people arguing for different things. For example, the logical positivists, right? The logical positivists were essentially very much like the Epicureans. And so there you go. The ideas are all similar. Worldviews sort of reduced to the same common denominators. They're not really subject to time. There's a, there, there's a thing called the origin of ideas, and there's also a thing called the consequence of ideas. That is Paul's sort of approach to the Areopagus. This is where he is coming. He is literally going up to what we call Mars Hill. And why did they call it Mars Hill? Because it was named after Ares, the Greek god of war. Mars Hill referred to the god of war. So think of the irony of that. Here's the Apostle Paul going into the field of battle, literally the battle of the gods. And what is he equipped with? He is equipped with a worldview that will show his opponents the absurdity of their ignorance. That's found in Paul's analysis of history. That's verses 24 to 29. Let's read that really quick together. Verses 24 to 29 says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, 
for we, are, for we also are the children of God. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone and, and an image formed by the art and thought of man. And so for Paul, this establishes a very important point. When he enters into the point of contact, he enters at this point not so much on a point, on an agreed point, but a point of differential, a worldview point. In other words, Paul is not laboring to establish an agreed-upon basis of knowledge, that is, general theism. That is not what he's doing. Quite to the contrary, when Paul uses the word God, this will turn out to be quite different than anything the Athenians can conceive of in their word, God. Paul first uses, uh, uh, begins by asserting the ignorance of his opponents by a consequent, as a consequence of their idolatry. This is not a neutral approach to apologetics. When you begin a discussion uh, of, of worldviews, and the first thing you say is that your opponent is ignorant, that's not neutral. That's, a, that's an accusation. That's an argument leveled against their worldview directly. Because they are detached from God and from his redemptive history, they are detached from God and his redemption. The assertion that the altar to the unknown God spoke of the Athenians' ignorance is congruent with Paul's teaching elsewhere. I mean, we just got done going through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. In 1st Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul praises the Thessalonians because they turned from idols to the living God. In Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 8 and 9, Paul tells the church they did not know God and they were not known by God. Same state of ignorance as the Athenians find themselves in. To show you that they had no common ground, as it were, no agreed sort of views on who God is, you can see it from the opposite perspective, from the perspective of the opponents of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 18. What was Paul doing? The Athenians were completely puzzled by Paul and his worldview and his message. They said he is a proclaimer of strange deities, literally xenos demonos, literally strange demons. Uh, but in the context of Greco-Roman thought, they would have... It, the word demonion there would have meant something like deities or divines or gods, something like that. All of this, in other words, was completely foreign to them. Uh, he was uh, proclaiming a strange deity. While the Athenians were not strangers to the concept of resurrections per se, because that was found in Greek mythology, yet there was something about Paul's message that was totally unfamiliar to them. They even said, you are bringing strange things to our ears. It's not something we're really accustomed to hearing what you're talking about. This is totally different. This also shows the Athenians, when they entered the field of battle, as it were, they also had a particular worldview in mind. They also were not neutral. They were not autonomous, neutral, objective when they approached the issue of Christianity. In other words, Paul was operating on Christian presuppositions and the pagans were operating on pagan presuppositions. That's the way the conversation went forward. And so, when that is the fact, when your opponent has 
a certain set of assumptions, a certain set of presuppositions, it makes sense that you first show them that their assumptions have led them to what, according to Paul? To ignorance. You don't even know what you're worshiping. You have even, as a testimony to your ignorance, you even have an altar to an unknown God showing that you don't even know what's out there. Maybe the unknown God cancels out every other God that you have an idol for. You ever thought of that? In other words, they're blind. In order, therefore, to situate the resurrection in its proper context, as we might expect, Paul begins with a development of Christian history. This is crucial to the argument, or redemptive history, showing, brothers and sisters, listen, showing the ultimate nature, or the, the, the nature of Paul's ultimate authority, namely Scripture. Do you understand Presuppositional apologetics operates on three basic principles. Ready? If you can write these down, this would be great. Number one, the nature of ultimate authority. Number two, this is a little bit more difficult, but it's very, very important. And that is making men epistemically self-conscious. In other words, showing them who they are, uh, exposing the nature of their thinking, of their reason, of their worldview. In other words, you have to awaken them to to who they really are and what's the nature of reason. And then last of all, arguing from the impossibility of the contrary. That is the presuppositional method in a, you know, in a nutshell. Those three things, the nature of ultimate authority, epistemic self-consciousness, and arguing on the impossibility of the contrary. In other words, we argue from the absolute certainty of Christianity or stated in the negative, the impossibility of the contrary. It is impossible that Christianity is not true because without it, you're worshiping an unknown God. You couldn't want better proof than that. And so is everybody else that you'll find, brothers and sisters, in this culture. So is the agnostic. So is the atheist. They're, they're given their presuppositions, it always results in the same thing. Ignorance. Ignorance. And therefore, there's no neutrality, as Van Til would teach, as Bonson would teach, as others would teach, Lane Tipton and others would teach. They're right. This historical development, that is the history that Paul gives us here in this chapter, is built on an Old Testament foundation. How do you know Paul was not neutral in the argument? This is how. If you pick up a Greek New Testament, let's say the, the NA27, Nessialon, the 27th or 28th edition of the Greek text, okay? In the column, just like in your Bibles, there's a, there's a scripture reference, and I have found that there is almost 25 citations, allusions, or echoes to the Old Testament as you go through the chapter in Acts 17. What does that tell you? What that tells you is that everything that Paul is doing and saying has an Old Testament foundation. Everything. It's amazing when you go back and you see how he's, he's, he's not quoting directly because, of course, he's having a conversation, so he's not sitting there quoting chapter and verse. But in his conversation, what he reveals is that every word he speaks is coming from Isaiah, from Deuteronomy, from Chronicles, from Kings, from the Psalms. It's all coming from the biblical worldview. That's the foundation for his apologetic. I think it's absolutely amazing. And in teaching, like he does here in Acts chapter 17, teaching that, look, we move and have our being in him. He has appointed our boundaries and our habitation that perhaps man would seek after God, might grope after him. Now, 
Now, be careful here. Verse 27, I want to challenge you guys on something. Verse 27 here is not saying that man in his ignorance, man in his, in his own cultural setting, by seeking and groping after God, will find God. Uh, no, I actually side with the exegetes that say, no, the next phrase, though he is not far from each one of us, what this is saying is that it's painting a word picture, as, as it were, of a blind man going around, groping around, trying to find something. You see what I'm saying? It's illustrating their ignorance. It's just reinforcing what he told them at the very beginning. You're worshiping an unknown God. In other words, you worship in ignorance. You see what I'm saying? And so, and so here, uh, matter of fact, that word, that Greek word there, grope, is actually used by a Plato for a cyclops who is a blind in a cave groping around in ignorance looking for something. That's kind of the picture that Paul's painting here. The same exact Greek word is used in Platonic thought. Amazing. And so in teaching God's providential sovereignty over all things, over all things, and how everyone everywhere should pay homage to God, the Apostle Paul is essentially recapitulating something that he already told pagans earlier in the book of Acts. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, because there, though he's not at the Areopagus, he is in Lystra, and with the Lyconians, he tells them essentially the same thing, essentially the same context, and essentially the same argument. Pagans who need a worldview in which God providentially takes care of everyone and is meticulously, sovereignly in control of all things. It's consistent. Uh, beginning in verse 14, Acts 14, 14, when the, apostle, uh, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, that is their desire to deify them, because when they saw the miracles coming through the apostles, they thought, we have to make an altar for your God. And so Paul and Barnabas, uh, you know, they... They ripped up their robes. They ran out, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? In other words, cease from your pagan idolatry. We are also men of the same nature as you. Well, that's a, not a neutral statement there. That is a biblically loaded statement. If we all have the same nature, that means that you're basing your ideas of humanity and anthropology on the Bible. We preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God by calling the objects of the Lyconians worship vain things that demonstrates that Paul is saying you are in a state of ignorance. They are not epistemically self-conscious of who they are. That's a long way down. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? He has to show them who they are. Doesn't that happen to you guys in apologetics? Don't you find yourself even trying to teach the unbeliever who they themselves are? They tell them, you know, you're in the image of God. God made you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You were made for God. You have a purpose. I mean, listen to the things that people are telling us today in our culture. Life has no meaning. Do you guys see the UNT video of a girl standing on the microphone? And she's saying, well, well just because life has no meaning, that does not mean that I can't leave, live my life in a meaningful way. And I would tell her, turn from these vain things <laughs> because your worldview is vain without God. You see? Turn to the living God. He made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Wow, this just sort of echoes back to 
Babylon, right? And also Psalm, uh, one, uh, Psalm 147, verse 19 and 20. What does it say? He reveals his statutes to Israel, his commandments to Judah, and he has not dealt with, with any other nation in this way. He has let the nations go their own way in ignorance. And yet, he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good. He gave you rains from heaven. See, same thing he's talking about in Acts chapter 17. The providential care of all mankind and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He could add to that so that perhaps you may seek him and grope for him and find him. You see, he could have just added that right towards the end. And therefore, in Paul's analysis of history, we should also uh, point out this step, which I talked about, making men epistemologically self-conscious. This is absolutely crucial to apologetics. In other words, they do not know themselves rightly, and because they, do, and because they have chosen, rather, to suppress the knowledge of God, thereby suppressing the knowledge of their own humanity, and all that it entails, as the idolatry of both the Lyconians and the Athenians show, the best that mankind can do with general revelation is to grope around for God. Verse 27 does not set forth the idea that through general revelation men can find God, but actually emphasizes that though he is not far from each one of us, man is left unaided. If he is left unaided by supernatural revelation, he will grope but never find. Ironically, when mankind engages in self-exaltation, they actually end up engaging in self-abasement. This is what Paul's teaching in Romans 1 is all about, the exchanging of the glory of God for a lie and incurring the consequences of a reprobate mind, which is to profess your wisdom in your folly. Because the Athenians had the wrong view of history, history along merely platonic lines, whether it was dualism, atomism, or monism, they can never arrive at the proper view of anthropology or cosmology or anything else. Paul sees the whole human race under the headship of one man. Let's look at that again. Verse 26. He says, And he, i.e. God, made from one man every nation of mankind. Where did he get that idea? Same place you got it. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> Right? That's where he gets it from. He believed in the headship of Adam. And therefore, brothers and sisters, what follows next has often been called Romans 1 in missional form. What, for Paul exposes the nature of the Athenians' exchange of the glory of the incorruptible God for images and forms of corruptible man. What is imperative to see here is that by virtue of their identity with Adam, the Athenians are under the penalty of Adam. Now, this is where we get reformed, okay? We get reformed because reformed theology uniquely, perceptively, biblically, and exegetically believes in the covenant of works. And that is that Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 presents presents. Uh, Adam as a public man. 
theologians say that Adam was a public man. It means that he is not just a, a creation of God, a, a, a man made in his image, but he's also a representative. He represents us. He represents all of his posterity. He represents all of humanity. And that's why the Apostle Paul, thousands of years, millennia, removed from Adam is still rooting and grounding his entire apologetic against the entire system of pagan thought in the federal headship of Adam in order to prosecute his case. We can say that the Apostle Paul here in Acts is like on a covenant lawsuit. And so some scholars, what they have said is that what Acts chapter 17 is doing, it's almost mirroring the covenant lawsuits of the prophets, how they would go in and prosecute their case along covenantal lines. And that's what's happening here. Along covenantal lines, all of man is still bound in solidarity to Adam. Paul is prosecuting his case that the Athenians have broken God's law. As You know, this reminds us, where did he get this concept? Where did he get these? Well, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, apart from the law, you will not know sin. In him, Paul says, we live, we move, we exist. As even some of your own poets have said, we are all the children of God, the offspring of God. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and thought, the thought of man. Ben Witherington, a scholar who has written a prolific commentary on the book of Acts, not a reformer, not a presuppositionalist, says in his commentary that what Paul is calling for here is not a minor adjustment or just an addition of additional facts, but he is calling for a total change of worldview. And I say, amen, Ben Witherington. You have spoken better than you know. Hopefully he becomes a presuppositionalist, reformed, you know, guy. Because that's exactly what we're saying. Now, what about the argument for the resurrection itself? Let me say this and make this very clear because, you know, my sermons, I've got five pages of notes. Guess how many I have today? Ten. Don't get up and leave. <laughs> I'm going to fast track. I, I promise to cut off some stuff. But it's true. I just, I, I just, kept, I just kept coming and I couldn't stop it. And I just thought, okay, well... God is going to have to preordain the boundaries of my sermon then because i got to cut it off somewhere. The argument for the resurrection is found in verses 30 to 31, but what I want you to understand is this. If you get nothing else of what I'm saying, take the, take the statement, that, the famous statement by Cornelius Van Til, and it's this. The fact of the resurrection does not make sense apart from the framework of the resurrection, which is redemptive history. And redemptive history, brothers and sisters, is meaningless without the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection, why? Because the resurrection is the apex of the history of God. It is the high point. It is the conclusion, as it were, of everything God did. As you look 
back at your Old Testament, so you go from the creation to the Tower of Babel, the, flood, the, the exit, the captivity, the flood, the kingdom, the crossing of the Red Sea, you know, going into Babylon, being attacked by Syria. I mean, all of these things. What is this all about? The resurrection is the apex of all of God's redemptive work throughout all of history. It, it, what does the book of Hebrews calls, call it? The consummation of the ages. That is what the work of Christ is. His death, burial, and resurrection. That's what it is. And you know we're talking about burial because as Paul says here, he says he furnished proof to all men by raising him. Is that all it says? No. Raising him from the dead. Actually, the pearl noun literally meaning from among the dead ones. In other words, emphasizing that God rose Jesus out of the grave from among the dead as a symbol of triumph. And therefore, given Paul's development of biblical redemptive history in this chapter, all the world stands in solidarity with Adam and is thus under the guilt of Adam, under the broken covenant of works. Jesus Christ underwent the covenant ordeal and the covenant judgment at the cross. You see, brothers and sisters, it's as simple as Adam 1 and Adam 2. You are either in the first Adam or you're in the last Adam. I wrote a book about that. It's called, what's it called, Trish? Uh, convert. From Adam, <laughs> that was a serious brain pause there. Uh, convert from Adam to Christ because in apologetics and more importantly, more importantly in evangelism, the whole enterprise of evangelism is to take a person out of Adam and put them into Christ. You see, the nations can go about their way. People can adopt whatever worldview they would like. You know, kids at UNT can tell me they're doing their own thing. But the reality is, is God has never lost sight of them in relationship to Adam. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. And therefore, all of humanity is in a crisis. They are in a covenant crisis. They are in an ordeal of judgment. There is a judgment that looms over all humanity. And at the end of the age, God will pour out His judgment. The judgment incurred by all covenant breaking. The judgment incurred by all edemic sin. The judgment incurred by all lawlessness, all iniquity. As Ezekiel says, He will punish iniquity wherever it is found. And if that judgment, and this is why this is why Paul has to recapitulate the entire history of redemption because when you're talking to Stoics and Epicureans, they care nothing about judgment. You meet people like that today? Judgment, oh yeah, well, whatever. It's like I saw a basketball player. Only God can judge me. I said, uh-uh, you should have wrote, only God will judge you because it's not a possibility it's a fact. And if God judges you 
according to your own sins and according to your solidarity with Adam, you are doomed. Humanity is hopeless and therefore the only hope that humanity has. Watch this. Look at verse 30 again. Just as the sin of the first Adam has ramifications for all people everywhere, wouldn't you agree? So too, the resurrection of the last Adam has, resur- has ramifications for all people everywhere. In the language of Paul in Romans, and this is why we say Acts chapter 17 is Romans in missional form. Because in Romans chapter 5, what does he say? Chapter 5, verse 18a, you know, a, first part. The first man in the first man in Adam there is sin, condemnation, and disobedience. And in 18b, there is righteousness, justification, and obedience. That's the issue. The fact that the resurrection has relevance for all people everywhere only emphasizes the covenantal or federal crisis that man is in since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that is at the very heart of God's covenant dealings with his people. Could there be anything more powerful, brothers and sisters, than the thought of what Paul is doing there in the Areopagus? In the hub of the culture, the hub of the, of the philosophy, the very center of modern thought in this, you know, metropolis of Rome, he goes in there and he tells every, every Athenian, every philosopher or philosophy is to be brought to use, I'm just going to quote Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5, is to be brought under the obedience of Christ to be brought under the obedience of Christ. That is their only hope. What does the resurrection prove? Well, without redemptive history, the resurrection to an Epicurean, without the resurrection, it proves something odd happened in the continuum of life. Inexplicable and ultimately unimportant. We have a category for that. It's called the Epicurean swerve. Something happened and the molecules and the the atoms in the world and something weird kind of went wrong, but we're back to normal and here we are, Paul. Just relax. We don't know if we'll ever know anything about this resurrection. See, without the framework of Christianity, the fact of the resurrection is meaningless and without the fact of the resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. They go together. They are inseparable. They depend. They interrelate It cannot be that the resurrection is presented as proof of anything without Christianity. And when you present Christianity, the resurrection is at the very heart of it. So, because this conversation with the Athenians had a context, we arrive at the conclusions, or at this conclusion in the following ways. Number one, all of man's wisdom cannot arrive at truth without God, symbolized by the altar of the unknown God. Number two, Only the biblical version of redemptive history can make sense out of man's knowledge and facts. For example, the resurrection and the final judgment. Brothers and sisters, if if the fact of the resurrection is not true in the context of redemptive history, guess what else is not true? Judgment. If Jesus is not raised from the dead in the way in which Paul is teaching here, then the final judgment is not something to be feared. But because Jesus rose from the dead, then that means that judgment is certain. 
Adam stands in solidarity with the whole human race. Adamic sin is the reason that man is left to grope for God. Mankind is guilty of the idolatrous exchange of the glory of God. See, this is all Pauline. In your mind, you're probably already thinking Romans chapter 1 again. Yeah, that's right, because all, of, all that he did in Acts 17 is rooted in other places in Paul. Idolatry also precludes the possibility of neutrality. What we learn from the Athenians, if anything, again, what are the three steps to apologetics? The nature of ultimate authority. Number two, epistemological self-consciousness. The idolatry of the Athenians, if it proves anything, is that man is not neutral. We have to make them aware of that. That people do not come into the conversation about the resurrection and the judgment on a neutral basis. They are not objective. Nobody is. Nobody is objective. History is not a random, according to Acts 17, it's not a random, unknown, endless sequence, sequence of meaningless and unintelligible events, but is the outworking of God's great plan for mankind. Enter in Kanye West. No, I'm serious. It's in the exegesis here. <laughs> I saw a video where Kanye West put on a MAGA hat, and he said somewhere, I, don't, I saw it on Fox News or something, he said, I'm just doing what the universe told me to do. My, how his worldview has changed now, uh, supposedly. We'll see what the second album is. <laughs> My, I think he would answer that differently now. I don't think he would appeal to some random unknown universe that's sort of just out there in this nebulous form. I think he would say, if he's consistent, King Jesus told me to do X, Y, and Z. Now, I don't know if King Jesus told him to vote for Trump, but I'm just saying, like, what is he relegated to? What does he chalk it up to? What do men posit as the necessary precondition for all things, if not God? God's eminence, his providence, and his sovereignty taught in Acts 17 precludes the possibility of autonomy, that man is not neutral and man is not autonomous. He is not independent of God, for as Paul himself has taught, in him we move, in him we have our being. He sustains us, and therefore to argue against him as Van Til would tell us, would be the equivalent of a grandchild climbing up the lap of his grandfather and slapping him in the face. Had he, no, had he not been sustained in the first place, he'd have no vantage point with which to strike his grandfather on the face. In the same way, unless you stand on Christian ground, you do not have the ground to stand and make an argument against Christianity because after all, as the Stoics and Epicureans themselves would say, ultimate meaning is impossible to obtain. Brothers and sisters, there's so much I can give you on that, but right now what I'm going to do is I'm going to end the sermon this way. Ultimately, what matters here is Scripture. And so I want to give you text after text after text after text after text 
You will write these texts down or just make a mental note of them if you're that smart. And this is, what, this is where you can go to see Paul's apologetic in theological action, right? Here we see it in missional action, but the theology is what gave birth to the, to the evangelism and the apologetics. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Colossians chapter 1, verses... Uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 through 8. And if you take Colossians, for example... Uh, presuppositionalism is a theology that we could argue based on the text of Colossians there, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. What is presuppositional apologetics? This is what it is. It's arguing from Christ, through Christ, to Christ, and for Christ. For. Soli dia gloria. Solus Christus. Soli dia gloria. That is what a true apologetic is all about. From him, through him, and back to him are all things. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would take at least some of what I've said here to stimulate our thought, our mind, and our hearts. Not just to think deeper, not just to study more, not just to learn more about apologetics and evangelism, but ultimately to be, like Paul, a broken-hearted evangelist, jealous for the glory of God willing to look at a culture and to not be numb to it, not to be indifferent to it because we're so used to it, but to look at a culture and be able to identify its idols and to call men away from these vain things. And also to be able, Lord, to reason with our fellow man, to reason with our neighbor, our friends, our family, our co-workers, everybody. To give a defense, to show them the futility of life and thought without Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us the same burden as the Apostle Paul. We may not have the same ministry. We may not be missionaries. We may not even be the most zealous, outspoken evangelists. But Lord, help us with the opportunities that you give, the open doors that you provide to speak boldly the truth of Jesus to a dying world. We pray that you would help us to do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the Reformation, if it was anything, the Reformation was evangelistic zeal. Uh, The Reformers were... The highest thinkers, I think, Christianity has ever seen. And yet, these high and great thoughts and these great theologians, they didn't just reside in their ivory towers. They went out into the world. They went out into the nations. They went out into the hard places, into the byways and highways. They remembered what their Lord had told them, to go and compel people to come in. And if, and if you're going to follow Reformed theology... You have more work to do because it's not just following Reformed theology. It's also following Reformed zeal, Reformed evangelism, Reformed piety. 
So I pray that we would do that by faith. Amen.